Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Today's guest, Dr. Carlene Krivikor, might actually be superwomen. She went from being a successful board-certified OBGYN to homeschooling five children while battling stage four colon cancer. And if those challenges weren't enough, she went ahead and rose to the occasion to become the first Black person ever elected to sit on the SCASD school board. She also recently released a memoir called Pressure Makes Diamonds. So please help me in welcoming Dr. Carlene to the show. Bonsoir. (laughs) Hello, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you here with me. Um, Usually like to kind of start out by letting you, because of course I just dumped a bunch of little tags for you in the intro, but I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about who you are, where you're from, you know, where, what your cultural history is, where you're from now. Okay. Well, right now I live in State College, Pennsylvania. It's in central Pennsylvania, but I'm originally from Haiti. Um, I left Haiti at the age of two and I came to this country at the age of five. Um, My father got scholarships um, to various countries. So I was young enough to travel with him because I didn't start school yet in Haiti. And my older brothers and sisters were in school and my little brother was too little to travel. So we lived in Africa for a year and then we lived in France for a year. And um, he lived in Tennessee for a year. He was starting medical school, but then decided he missed his country and we went back to Haiti. And the turbulence and the political situation, eventually we we left again. And this time, like immigrant family, he went first and then he took my mom and myself again. And then my brothers and sisters came and joined us later. And then my grandmother, because immigrant family, we just don't go all together because the father usually goes first and makes sure that everything's okay. He could get a job. He could support his family. And that's how we came in. And we went to New York and I lived in New York most of my life. I went to school there and then medical school. I went to New York. And then when my husband and I we got married, we decided to leave New York for a while, temporarily, while we were exploring. And we ended in Pennsylvania. And five years later, five kids later, we're still in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it's been it's been wonderful. It's there were some challenging moments, but overall it's been a wonderful journey. I definitely hear New York. <laughs> you you definitely have that New York accent. I love it. But I know you said um and I'm going to reference your book just for the audience. I'm going to reference your book a couple times. Um, so just going back to the introduction, when, when I'm saying your book, that's what I'm talking about. You reference in your book that when you first moved to your neighborhood in, was it Brooklyn? Yes. Um, that your family was the only Black family in that neighborhood. And to nobody's surprise, you guys experienced some pretty bad discrimination and and hateful acts by other kids. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, probably by adults too, to some degree. Um, wondering through those experiences, were there any moments that you can remember that you feel shaped who you are and how you moved through the world? You know, I think we've encountered a lot of racist situations, but we've also encountered some really wonderful white people. And so I try my best not to let the bad people um deter me from believing that everybody is bad. And so 
Yeah, the first, and this was such a small part of my life, but when we first came to New York, we lived in an apartment building in Flatbush and that house caught fire. And I was about, yeah, I was, yeah, I was very young. And I mean, I almost died in that fire because my father, I was, I was sick in bed. I had a cold and everyone rushed out in the fire. And then my father forgot that I was still upstairs. And he told the fireman, she's still upstairs. And um, he says, the fire, the house is, it's burning. You can't go back there. You know, we'll see what we could do. And my father just went back and he saved me. And because I was asleep, I didn't know any better. And so our house burned down and it was because our apartment burned down and it was because somebody was smoking in bed until this day, you know, none of us smoked because it was so terrifying that I've always been afraid of cigarettes and I never wanted to try it. Um, a white Jewish family took all of us in, strangers that we never knew. And we stayed with them for a couple of months until my father could get, you know, get back to his foot, his bearings. And when we bought our first house, then we moved to Brooklyn. So our first introduction was kindness from people that we didn't even know. And then the second half happened where these kids were throwing rocks at us and calling us the N-word. And, um, and and I just didn't understand why, you know, that people would do that because of your skin color. That just astonished me. Well, I'm really happy to hear that that first interaction was kindness, because I think that's really important to emphasize because um, yes. there is a, there is a lot of negative. Let's not sugarcoat right. that. But at the same right. time, I think sometimes that overshadows the mass amount of positive. So mm -hmm. I love, I love that. And the, oh, there was a recent fire in a Brooklyn apartment. Um, I think it was just a couple months ago. I don't know if, it, well, maybe it was in Brooklyn. Anyways, I'm on a tangent, but that always scares me. So I'm so happy to hear that your dad was like, go get her. Oh my gosh. Speaking of kind white people, your husband is white. Yes, um, is. So obviously he caught your eye. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys meet in school when you were in college or after that? Actually, he wasn't attending and I was chief resident and he was uh, OB anesthesia attending and I was the chief resident OB at the time. So when we had difficult cases or we knew we would um, need anesthesia's help, I always went to him and that's how we got to know each other. I would present him the cases of patients that may need an epidural and I would tell them, well, be careful because her platelets are low. And so, you know, I would prepare him. Sometimes he would send a resident to do the job, but a lot of times he did it himself. He was the one on the floor. Um, so that's how we got to know each other. And after a very difficult case, he told me, oh God, we have to go. We saved this. It was just a dreadful preeclamptic, high, very high pressure woman. And it was just a very difficult case, touch and go for her and the baby, but both survived. And he said, oh, wow, what a difficult case. Let's go out for drinks. And I didn't know if it was just me and him. I didn't know. And then it turns out yeah, that he did like me. And I just thought that we were just good friends. And then our relationship developed. And then five kids. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think our relationship developed because I think we were both looking for friendship, you know, and it just started out so nice. I, we, I wasn't anticipating anything. I wasn't thinking that I would marry a white person. I really did. And it was not on my radar. And I'm not sure if it was for him too. We just got to be such good friends that we didn't see color, like people would say. We just, you know, and so when I was looking at his family album and after we, and I was like, oh my God, he really is white, you know? <laughs> Oh my goodness. 
No, but it is so true. And I know that that term, and I understand why that term is so triggering to some people. Yes. It, it's not respecting the different the differences. I, I do understand exactly. that. But I think what you're saying is, is maybe the ultimate goal or the one, the, the ultimate goal that I would like to see is that I see you, I see yes. that you're black. It's yes. not a relevant piece of this conversation in terms of like normal life, right? Yes. Obviously, we're talking about it now because we're on the podcast. But <laughs> um, but but in regular life, that's just it doesn't make you entirely who you are. It's just a piece of who you are. Exactly. Um, you said that perfectly. <laughs> did you guys when you when you got together, though, I'm curious because, listen, admittedly, interracial relationships are, are even still today, not mm -hmm. always treated very kindly by society. Did you guys experience any challenges integrating families or cultures, friends, things like that? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's a few friends of his that um, I said, you know, you don't see this person anymore. You know, are we going to, because he, he would talk me up, he would tell me about them. And I said, you know, are we going to meet them? And he says, no, he says, no, he says, no, nope, they would not understand our relationship. And I just don't even want to go there with them. So, you know, he just, we just never met all of some of his friends and some of my friends were a little shocked in the beginning too. And then they came around more of my friends came around easier than his. And there were tensions in his family also initially, um, especially with his mom. Um, so those were, um, those were some painful moments. I remember after we got engaged, he, we were sitting in New York right outside my apartment and we were just talking and um he had picked he had dropped me off and this cop came and this cop wanted his license and registration and he's like why why is this all about you know officer could i ask and he goes could you just give me your license could you just give me this and so we just gave it to him and then afterwards he says you have a crack on your windshield and my husband says oh okay thank you and then he left he got a warning and he left and he goes, wow, how did he see that? I said, do you really believe that's the reason why he came? I mean, you can't even see it. How could he see it from way across where he was? I said, it's because we're an interracial couple and he doesn't like it. And I said, sweetheart, are you sure you want to do this? Because you're coming into my world now. I've dealt with this. You haven't. And it's not a world that a lot of people would, you know, automatically want to come into. And I said, these are the kinds of stuff that's going to happen. And it's going to happen to our kids. This is a new life for you. Are you sure you want to go through with this? You could back out now, but this is just the beginning. It happens. And he was, really? You think so? And, you know, like he didn't understand that, you know, it's the relationship that he white people, I guess, or he had with cops, we, they're, you know, we're terrified of cops. You know, a lot of times we don't see cops as protecting us, you know, um, and he's not, he, he's just very friendly and everything. And we just, that was the introduction that we were saying, our worlds are different. You have to understand that. So that was a little shocking. And then over the years, he realized, you know, a lot of the things that I said was true. And it was hard for him to also, because he, that's not how he saw the world until his kids are dark skinned, his kids are black, you know, that we have all colors of the rainbow of our kids. And he finally realized what I was talking about because he didn't actually believe it. It's really hard um, because 
I can, well, I can see both sides only because I have had an experience with a black friend of mine. And from that experience, it was, it was similar to what you described. Actually, he was driving. I was in the passenger seat. We were in another state, a small state, a very white state. Uh, not that I'm not in a very white state now I am, but, <laughs> but the point is it was just, he was definitely um, in other, right? Mm-hmm. And the experience that we had, I was just sitting there and I was starting to get so mad and I'm a little bit outspoken. So I was like, please don't say anything. Please don't get us in trouble. And we drove away and I'm like, is that what happens every time? And he's like, yeah. And I just, I don't question anything anymore. When somebody tells me it happened, I believe them. And I think it's tough because from from the other side, I can understand why it's so hard for people to believe these things. And I think it's just, it really is just experience, just being open to listen and like, and having an experience with people. I, I want to just slide back a little bit because I want to ask you a question about your experience as an OBGYN. Okay. Um, so it's, it's related to, um, we talk a lot about differences in not just race, but in, in cultural differences mm-hmm. and also just the way we are accepted or seen mm-hmm. when we step out in society, no matter who we are. Mm-hmm. So in your experience in the OBGYN field, did you notice any particular differences with women depending on their situation in terms of class or their situation in terms of race? Was there any patterns that you noticed? Yeah, um, I trained at SUNY um, Downstate and we had a lot of things change. So I just don't want to let people think that it's still going on. Things have improved for the better. So I'm happy about that. But we had like Kings County, which was kind of like the public hospital. And then we had across the street, the private hospital. And you just saw the difference. You saw sometimes the difference in the treatment, the difference in the patients because they were poorer. Um, and a lot of them didn't have prenatal care. And so it, it, it was just like night and day, you know? And so sometimes a lot of these poor women also weren't treated with respect. You know, just because you're poor doesn't mean you don't need respect. And so, yeah, we saw that. Um, some of the white physicians also had like these little jokes they would say about these black patients, you know, and I felt like a lot were just kind of passing through, getting their knowledge, getting their surgeries in, and then just leaving, like never coming back to Brooklyn, you know, and to me, that was horrible. That was awful. Um, but some of my friends still work there and we still talk and i said you know how are things i had to give this um presentation a week or so ago about the maternal health and the disparities that exist and so i did give some examples and then i just thought of my friend i said wait a minute she's still there and so we got to talking again and she says yes some of these things are still there we're making progress progress always comes slowly but we are and um so i was happy to hear that but yeah that was that was a problem. Well, and this might be, and I should preface this by saying that you know you did mention obviously it has been uh, several years since you've been right. practicing, so um, we want to put that disclosure out there. But I'm curious since since you have still colleagues and friends in the field, have you seen any changes in um, how 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 do I want to put this female challenges or things that have changed in terms of female health? 
as we move in society. And the only reason I, let me tell you why I'm asking that. And it might just be my age, but I have had so many friends and people that I know talking about infertility issues and not just infertility issues, but so many people are being told like that you have to get a hysterectomy at a young age. And so like all kinds of things like this, and I'm just curious, is there something environmental or society that is, is being noticed that's triggering things like this or? That has always been an issue, even when I was training um, a few 20 years ago about needless hysterectomy. And I had given a talk on that too, that unfortunately we live in a world where it's profitable. <laughs> that's it's that's one of the reasons. Um, there was this doctor that used to write um, a C-section kid is a cut above the rest. Um, yeah, yeah, because you don't want to wait. You don't want to wait around and hold wait around, you know, for a baby to come. And so sometimes you would section. Now a lot of the times it was indicated. Sometimes I felt that some doctors felt you get l less of a chance of being sued if you don't if if you think the baby might even be slightly big or anything like that, you just C-section. You don't want to even bother because of the fact of being sued of liability. And for OBGYN, it's like one of the highest um, malpractice insurance. And so, um, so a lot of doctors wouldn't even try or like forceps that if you found a doctor that did forceps, oh my God, that, you know, and the older doctors, when they showed you how to do forceps, they were so good. It was just a thing of beauty to watch. But a lot of the newer doctors wouldn't even bother with that. You would get a C-section right away if there was any indication because of the fact that you're going to get sued and no one wants to bother with that. The number one reason why people would have hysterectomies were fibroids, uh, myomas, which is a benign growth um, in your uterus. And a lot of times when you get to menopause, because it's estrogen related dependent, it would shrink. And so we would try to wait and tell them, you know, if it's not bothering you, you don't have to get a hysterectomy. But once people hear that you have an abnormal growth in you, they're thinking, oh my God, I want it out, you know? And so depending on how you present that too, you could you could lead the person, a patient to decide, no, let's just get it out right now. Unless if you tell them, you know, it's not a big deal, we could monitor it. So it depends on your presentation. And another one is for abnormal bleeding. And um, over the years, there've been a lot of improvement in that with, with um, endometrial ablations and other things that you could do without pulling out the uterus. But again, um, after a while, you know, patients come in with two or three times with that complaint, the doctors say, okay, well, I think we should get a hysterectomy. So okay. that has been going on. That has been happening. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I guess I just wasn't hearing about it. That's, it's pretty crazy to me. And um, speaking of kind of a good uh, transition over to the kiddos, you <laughs> had, um, you had a very challenging um, or a scary situation on your final pregnancy where you thought you might be miscarrying. And then it turns out twins. And yes. I literally started laughing out loud when you when you were writing like what your husband said, we only agreed on one more. And how did this happen? And I'm like, well, <laughs> oh my gosh, that was so funny. So the kids are, are such a huge and important part of your life. Definitely, definitely. And being an obstetrician too was so scary what I was going through because I knew exactly 
when he told me, I knew exactly what he was doing when my I started going through preterm labor, my saclage, which was a stitch in my cervix, broke off and he had to put another one. And so I was just, do what you have to do. Stop explaining everything to me because I, <laughs> I already knew it. And I just, I was terrified. I really came close to losing my twins. But they're doing good now. All the children, well, two of them have graduated, right? Oh, I only have one that's left. I'm okay. Jackie, my youngest. So she's finishing her last semester at Harvard, um, graduating this year. Oh my goodness. So, and everybody should grab the book and, and you'll get to hear all about this. But five kids, Ivy League school, after you homeschooled all of them from the time that your oldest was really young, right? Yes. She, was, she wasn't even 10 yet? She wasn't 10 yet. Yeah. So yeah. for, for a about, long time. Yeah. Yeah. She was about six when I started homeschooling them. Yeah. And I'm curious about that transition only because you do share a lot of that in, in the book. So again, I just want to reference people to go grab that and hear the full story. But being a mom, a doctor, and your children are very brilliant. <laughs> they, got, they got good genes. They got good parenting, all of the things. Being a mom and being told no, your daughter's too smart. She's going to make other people feel uncomfortable. So we need to basically pull her back. Yes. What did that, I feel like you probably handled it much better than I would have. Cause like I said, <laughs> I'm very uh, like mouthy sometimes, but I'm curious, like what was going through your head at that time? Like what, what the heck would you want me to make? You want me to tell my daughter to not be so smart because you're uncomfortable. You know, at first I didn't think he even believed me that my daughter was this smart. Um, he was just dismissing me like, oh my God, here she comes again, you know, complaining. So finally, when he tested her and he realized she was this smart, and then he said, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. You know, your kid is way above everybody else. And, you know, we have to care about the kids that are failing, but they don't realize that we have to help all our kids because if a kid is so smart and she's bored, like my daughter was, she didn't want to go to school anymore. She's going to get into mischief. I mean, these smart kids need an outlet. They need to be challenged. And that's the thing, you, you know. So I've always advocated for all the kids and even on the school board, you know, how do we help our advanced kid? And how do we help our uh, challenging kids? Because it's very important to to speak to their level, to teach all of them. You can't just ignore one child because they all need the help. They all need encouragement. And this is what I was trying to explain to the principal. It doesn't matter. And, you know, there's a lot of kids in juvenile detention. They're so smart and the, they were so tired of being in school. They were so bored in being in school. And then they caused trouble elsewhere. They weren't being challenged. And we see that. Yeah. And I, did you ever get nervous? The only thing I think about when I think about homeschooling is, did you ever get nervous that it would take away from any of the social aspects of school? See, that's the question that a lot of people ask about the social thing. And because, first of all, we had a family of five. So I had my own little school. <laughs> it wasn't just one. Very true, very true. And we played sports. We did communicate with the other children. But yes, um, certain point in time, I think of my kids, some of the, the ones that kind of started dual schooling earlier where they were able to take some classes and then I was able to teach them at home. They have kind of more friends. They have, when they all come back to visit, they, they have more friends in the area than my oldest does because she really didn't have a lot of time to cultivate friendships. So I think of that a lot and I 
kind of always went back in my mind in that in the book too like i felt a little guilty at times when she didn't have a lot of friends um but then when you kind of get into the real world outside of school and even in college you know it's not age related anymore you know um when i was doing my residency in medical school you've had kids especially when people take gap years now so many different ages you know my when i was a chief resident then um my the one that was right after me the third year i think she was like in her 30s and i was like in my 20s you know but you knew you had to get along and i think sometimes school is good in in the beginning when they have the same ages together but at a certain point that's not the real world when you leave you're going to you're going to interact with so many different people with different age, at different ages and i think that's important to know how to do and i think in that aspect my kids have learned how to do that very well especially my oldest she's just never afraid to speak up you know cuz she's always had to do that regardless it it wasn't just with her peers with a lot of adults and um she just has this confidence in her and i think that's because of that reason so there were good and bad things about that. Yeah. Oh, and and I didn't mean to suggest it was bad. It was just I'm just curious because I know that but of course you bring up that they were in sports and right. and, and a lot of activities. Like I'm yes. not really sure if you have some sort of time traveling ability, but there <laughs> sounded like a lot of a lot of things going on. So I'm curious about just the experience of their childhood if you noticed because of course Dad's white, you're black, so they're biracial. But mm -hmm. if, you know, for all intents and purposes, they walk around in society as black male and females, right? Mm -hmm. Have you seen them experience anything that you felt paralleled any of your experiences growing up? In the central Pennsylvania, where they grew up, it was mostly white, and with their father being white, um, and them being dual school. Um, I, I don't think they understood a lot of the situation that was going on in the Black community um, and the Black awareness. And I think this is one of the reasons that I wanted to start teaching them about a lot of African-American history and sending them off to these different camps that emphasize that. And when they came back from these camps, they were so impressed. And I really wanted them to be around a lot of Black kids for change because they were always like the only white kid in the class or maybe only two it was filled with a lot of asians and whites and so um that experience they loved it um and they made good friendships from that there was this this essay that my son had to write about um the jesse williams contest about what he spoke about about being black and you know and the killings that were going on and he won and he won that and i was you know, I always felt that maybe my kids didn't understand what's really going on in Black America. And, and, you know, and so trying to explain it to them, I felt sometimes they weren't listening to me. And when he wrote that essay and he won, it was just such a remarkable essay about how he was really feeling about Black males being shot uh, in the streets. And he never really articulated that with me. And I had to read it in an essay. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know, I didn't think you you guys really thought about it. And sometimes you're so afraid. And I mentioned the part in the book where Trayvon Martin was murdered. And I really, it was the first time I really sat down 
to talk to the kids about the situation and how I fear when they go out with their kids and with their friends. And I always tell them, and you know, that you guys are black. You know, you're usually the only one, the black kid with your white friends. And if the white friends act stupid and do something wrong, you're the one that's going to get blamed. So whenever they're doing anything wrong, you walk away from there because I don't want you involved because they will blame you. The parents will blame you and the police will blame you. And you have to understand that. And in the beginning, I didn't think they understood what I was saying. And there, I remember there was this one situation where my husband had gotten a motorcycle. Um, he, it was just a 40 thing that he wanted to do. <laughs> He didn't even have it for so long, but he ran out of gas and he was, we were back in form country and he was, we were at the dinner table and he was telling us this, that he ran out of gas and he walked to this person's farm and he knocked on the window and there he saw their rifle and everything else. And he knocked on the window and the man turned around and then he explained to the man what happened. And the man, they had a beer. The guy said, okay, I'll drive you to go get some gas. And they had a great time. And he's talking, telling this story. And he sees nothing wrong with it. After he finishes, I tell my kids, don't you ever, ever do that. Because that man will shoot you first and then ask questions later. Because you were on his property. You're a black kid. Your father's white. And that he felt, he didn't feel threatened. If it was a black kid like you... He would shoot first and then ask questions later and you were on his property and he would have every right to shoot you so do not ever do that if you guys run out of gas for whatever reason you make sure you you, you have your phone you call me you know wherever you are you don't do that and michael was my husband he was like why are you always scaring them i said because that's the reality that they live in you don't understand that i fear for them when they go out that's my reality. That's a lot of black mothers' reality um, for their daughters and their their sons. And um, and eventually he understood what I, you know, what I was talking about. But that's, you know, and I feel like he felt that I was scaring my kids for no reason. And I said, trust me, they need to learn this because I don't want them to be on the other side of this, you know, facing a gun or facing something like that. I think that is a huge, huge, huge challenge um, as we move forward because it's it's a hundred percent valid for you to feel that way, and you shouldn't ha- give that up in any way. And then there's because those situations are so true, and there's we've seen them happen, we've seen them play out historically in on our TV screens. As we change as a society, I hope that they become less prevalent. And any, you know, you can knock on the the window and ask for help and you're just a person, right? (laughs) Do you see in our lifetime, do you see that fear subsiding at all? I I don't, to be honest with you. And I was very hopeful. And these last few years, um, it seems like there's a backlash now. Um, I think that things were improving, but maybe things were just hidden underneath. And when they, the, some of the racist people got permission to just be racist. It's all out there now. And it's, there's no apology. There's no hidden, you know, it's just right out there. Um, and that's shocking because growing up, you knew, you knew that some people didn't like you, but now it's like, but they would try their best or keep it in. 
but now it's just open season. I often wonder, and I go back and forth on this, I often wonder, would we rather them be bold and ignorant and dumb to our face so at least we know who we're dealing with or undercover and think they can get away with it? And I don't know what the true answer is. I really don't. Um, But I do wonder that. I wonder if the, what I would say, straight up stupidity Mm -hmm. being in our face will cause more people to understand that it still exists. Because I think when it's hidden under the rugs, it's easier to pretend that, oh, that was this long ago. No, honey, it's happening right now. Right. Right now. Right. Um, So it's just something I think of a lot. And I think that's a really good question because I think about that too. The only thing about now that it's in the open so prominent, I think it also drags other people along that probably weren't thinking like that. And they said, well, you know what? They may have a reason. And, you know, and now you just made things much worse. Whereas if they kept it to themselves and they know and they just died with it, hopefully they wouldn't infect other people. But now it's okay to do that. Yeah, I mean, group speak, mob mentality, whatever you exactly. want to call it, is a very, very, very real thing. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's true. Closing it up on the kids. What? Well, I think you might have just shared this, but if there's a different one, you as a mom, what is your greatest fear for your children now as they all start their own journey as young adults? Um, you know, I know they're going to make mistakes. And I can't solve their mistakes, nor do I, should I, because they have to grow and you grow. I just hope that whatever mistakes they do, they could pivot, you know, like you could learn from it because it's so easy for us to say as parents, you're going to go through your mistakes. Some mistakes are okay. You know, some mistakes you learn from and you move on. Other mistakes, you can't move on that, that easily. So this is why I try to tell them, um, I will let you do fix your own mistakes. But whenever it comes to unbearable that you need my help, I am there for you. You go and try to fix it the best way you can initially, but know that I will be there to help you if you need my help. Don't let it get out of hand, you know? And so that's my biggest fear to know when not to butt in and let them grow because they have to grow. But you just hope that it's, not such a big mistake that they can't pivot and walk away from it. Yeah, let let them go, but have enough faith that they're not too stubborn, you know, like <laughs> fly. But if your wing gets cut off, let me catch you, okay? Like I'm here. Yeah, that was uh, Evan, I think Evan Hansen said something like that, which was so beautiful. Um, she's a poet and okay. she said that, oh, and I, when she, when she had written that, I thought of my kids and she said that, oh, darling, you know, you could, oh God, what is it again? There is freedom waiting for you on the breeze of the sky. And then the child says, but mom, what if I fall? And then the mom, this is what you should say. A lot of moms says, I will catch you. But what you should say is, but what if you fly? And that, I love that. I love that so much because I think that we should be encouraging our kids, you know, they will fall, but we don't need to tell them that, you know, we'll be there to catch them, but they need to believe that they could also fly. If the first thing out of our mouth is that we're going to catch them, 
we're already telling them that they're going to fall. And I don't think we should do that. So I really like the ending. She says, oh, but darling, what if you fly? Oh, I, I, <laughs> I love it. Yes, I love it. I love it. Love it. So on the flip side of that, then, what is your biggest wish for them? And there's five of them. So I understandably, if there's different wishes for each, but <laughs> I guess the same for all of them. I just want them to be happy. And, you know, when my son trained Nicholas, he was pre-med in school and now he he pivoted to computers and VR and he's amazing. His eyes, you know. The, the, the color schemes that he has. He does my website. He does a lot of stuff. Yeah. So he would tell me, no, mom, this color doesn't go with that. You, you know, I said, what, the, what difference does it make? He goes, it's important. Your eyes catches these colors and, you know, and they use down and you don't even know why, but that's so important. So he's like my little perfectionist, you know, VR imagery and everything. But he was also my great science person. And I could have seen him in um, in medicine. He loved biology, teaching him. So when he pivoted, when he changed to change his major from pre-med to that, he kept telling everybody, oh God, mom's going to be so upset with me. Mom's going to be so upset with me. And I had to tell him, sweetheart, you know, it's your life now. I'm not living your life. I knew you would have been a great doctor and you never know. You may change your mind again, but you need to do what's going to make you happy. And that's all we want for our kids is for them to be happy. So that would be number one answer for all five of my kids that, you know, I've lived my life and they were such a, and they're still such a huge part of it. And they brought me happiness. And now it's for them to go find their own happiness. That's amazing. Okay. All right. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> um, so the last thing, and this just just something that I, what is your wish for you? Because you had, a, you went from a successful career to a successful career of raising and growing and teaching children. What's, what, and let us not forget kicking cancer's booty, we'll say booty. What's your wish for you? I wish that I could continue to kick cancer's booty. Um, I feel, I've been asked this question, like, how do you feel like you're cured? And I never really believe I'm cured. I always feel that I'm in remission. And when other people, and I've had two good friends that just came down with, with colon cancer, and I just cried because I just could feel that over again, this, this panic, this, this sadness. And so I still have to go for yearly um, exams. And two years ago, they thought it came back and it was something else um, that I had to deal with. Um, but we weren't sure at the time because my levels. So I just, you know, my daughter's getting married next year. <laughs> so I'm so happy. And my, you know, my younger one is graduating. And so I didn't think I would see live the next this 10 years. You know, I kept saying, oh my God, if I could live to 60, if I could, I'm almost there, you know? And um, and I could couldn't believe it the other day. I said, Oh my God, Michael, I lived 10 years, which I did not think it was possible. And so I just want to be healthy and I just want to hopefully keep living my best life and seeing my kids grow and hopefully my grandkids at some point. So that's my wish for me. Um, I enjoy being on the school board. I'm learning a lot and I'm, I hope that I make an impact on other kids' life like I did on my own kids. So that's it. Keep doing you. I love it. Well, I want to open it up because I know that you 
you know, you have school board and I think you were also running for another school board, maybe a college school board or, or um, something in the past. I might be, I might be misremembering when I was looking up research, but your book, of course, which we touched on a couple times, but I'd like to open it up and let you share anything that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on or that you want to put out there. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Sorry to me to catch you off guard. <laughs> Being on the school board, um, I've, we've, we've got a, this is spring break now, so I'm not getting a lot of letters, but we get like 10 letters a day. And some of them are like three pages long. And some of them are quite touching on things that we have to vote on. And I, I read every single one of the school board letters that I receive because I think that if a parent or a student or anyone is going to take time to write to me and write to the board, the least we could do is to read it. And sometimes they have links and I go and I read the links. I read magazine articles that they send because this is democracy at work. And I, and I am so excited when it's a lot to read. And sometimes I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't even want to answer my, look at my email because it's going to be more people. But I think it's beautiful. And I think that your voices are heard. And some of the letters actually did change my mind because they told me how important the school calendar was for them and how it affected them. And it was really beautiful, well-written. And, you know, there's disagreement definitely on, on, in our, in our, district like everywhere else but so far we haven't seen the violence and you know the things that we see on television i think for the most part most people have been very respectful and um they've addressed us politely and i think that everyone should be involved in their school board it doesn't matter if your kids are gone you're still paying taxes you know things are there's so many things that are important that we vote on that you wouldn't even believe and we make it available you know, we're either on Zoom or we, we have to, you know, by law, we have to advertise our meeting. So school board is really, you know, you should really get involved in your local government. I didn't think it was that important when I was raising my kids. And now I find out that it is very important. So I tell everyone that you should really get involved in local government if you have the time. Yeah. And actually, I really appreciate you sharing that too, because admittedly, I was not, um, very interested in politics until um, a few years ago because I I just found it to be a turnoff because I saw mm-hmm. so many. I don't like the negative. Like I love debates. I love debates, but I don't like the negativity. You know, mm-hmm. we can we can have a debate and disagree right. and and not take each other's heads off. Anyways, right. so I think it's really I really appreciate you sharing that because I think some people need to hear that. I've heard so many people say that they don't feel like their voice is heard. What's the point? Why would I even try? But you sharing the fact that you are reading them and it is important. Yeah, their voices are heard. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you ready for the final three questions? Yes, I am. Okay. All right. So um, what is, we like to try to leave with an action item. So what is one thing that you think, small thing, that every parent and or educator could do today to enhance their child or children around them, enhance their educational experience? And and it doesn't have to be education in school. It's just because we're learning all the time. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Encourage them because I think kids need encouragement. Like you said about being seen, a lot of times kids don't feel seen, you know, and when you acknowledge them and encourage them, they do it. 
a funny story. I never thought of being a doctor until one of my teachers told me that I think I would be a good doctor. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you like, that never even entertained. I never even imagined it. And ever since she told me that, then I start telling people, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor. And so encouraging kids is so important. Either you're a parent, you're a teacher, you know, you're a neighbor. I think kids love being encouraged. Yes. Plant the seed of possibility. That is amazing. Yes, exactly. All right. What five words would you use to describe yourself? Persistent, courageous, um, progressive, fair-minded, and um, determined. Fantastic. Very strong, powerful words, which seem very fitting for you. Where would you like to send everybody for them to connect with you, for them to find your book? Um, Number one place would be my website, um, www.colleencrevercourt.com. And any message that you leave there, I will answer because I read everything. Uh, I am on social media and you'll find a way to connect me on my website also. I don't post as much as I should. That was like my New Year's resolution. I said, okay, I'll get a little bit more active on social media. And everybody's telling me I'm trying to get less active on social media. <laughs> so The challenge the of life. Yes. And if you hop on your website, you have uh, a section where you kind of have each kid and little updates on them, yes. which... I don't remember which, is it Michael that has, or Mike that does the music? Oh, yes. wow. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. So yes, everybody hop on the website and check it all out. Grab the book. I got, I got it off of Amazon, but you probably can, you're linked to it on your website as well. Yes. Okay. And cool. if you do like the book, please leave a review. I didn't know how important reviews were for, um, authors. So they're very important. So I just want to put it out there. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was amazing. Mm -hmm. All the positive vibes and the power to you. We need you to stay here and keep fighting and making amazing changes in the world. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you, as always, for listening in today. I hope today's conversation with Carlene gave you some inspiration and some things to sit and think on for your own personal life and how you can do better when educating those around you. As a reminder, the opinions and thoughts that were expressed on today's episode are not intended to be medical advice. These are our own experiences and thoughts and opinions on specific topics. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. If you're enjoying the show, it is very helpful if you provide a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform that you listen on. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode and share the show with everyone you know. As always, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversation going. Encouraging kids is so important. Mm-hmm.